Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Welcome to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. Today I'm with Brett Dawson. Brett, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hi, Michelle. It's so nice talking to you today. Yes, I am a process engineer, so uh, that's a chemical engineer for people who maybe are not familiar with the engineering environment. I used to work in, I used to live in South Africa. I moved over over to the UK about 15 years ago. And I've worked in many different industries, iron and steel, oil and gas, renewable energy, utilities. I've made lots of changes in my career. It's been a really interesting, interesting one. What made you change your career for the industries? Yeah, I I started off in the iron and steel industry and I was not very happy with the safety record. And I was also not very happy with the working environment. So iron still is very dusty, very noisy, very dirty. There's a lot of leaking pipes, coke oven gas with mercaptans and sulfurous type smelling gases in the air. That used to get into my hair and my clothes. And it was just a very unpleasant environment to live in. It didn't have a very good safety record at the time that that I started working um, in that uh, sector at the beginning of my career, which was um, over 20 years ago, over 25 years ago. And I just got to a point where I thought, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. This is this is not where I want to spend the rest of my life. And I was looking for something, something different. And as it turned out, around about the time that I managed to get past my bursary commitments, that's a whole long story to itself. I'm not going to go into it right now, if you, unless you unless you specifically want to. I I bumped into a colleague of mine who I studied with at university, who was working in the oil and gas industry. She was working for the petrochemical in the petrochemical industry for the synthetic gas, coal to liquids, gas to liquids um, technology, Cecil. Use the fish chops process, and she was saying that they were looking for people to come and work for them. And I saw that as a, a fantastic opportunity to switch into industries. And I must say, it was a complete change going from iron and steel to oil and gas, because the oil and gas environment was very clean, no leaking pipes. It was quite astounding how much of a difference that transition was. Do you want to talk? Do you want me to talk about the second transition that I made, which was into renewables? Yes, please. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'd been working in oil and gas for quite a while and started getting very focused on the need for us to transition to sustainability. So it it was early on in sort of like late 90s, just before 2000, when there was a lot of media attention on sustainability and the problem with climate change. And it was becoming a really hot topic. And the more I spent thinking about it, the more I realized that it was, you know, I, I was using all my time and energy and my skills and my talents in an industry that was actually part of the problem, it was propagating part of the problem. So I was working for Shell as an investment analyst at the time, making sure that there would be products being sold 20 years down the line from the refinery. And I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could be part of the solution and if I could channel my energy and time and talents into that? And so what I did was I spent, it was about a two to three year project, personal change project, 
where I looked at how was I going to make this transition from one industry to another industry because I didn't really know a huge amount about renewables at the time, but I wanted to get involved in renewable energy as a, a climate change mitigation strategy. And I spent those two, three years working on developing. There were three things I focused on. I focused on the knowledge aspects of what I needed to know and read as much as I could, educated myself as much as I could and, and as widely as possible to understand what the issues were. And then what that did was it enabled me to start having conversations with people where I understood what the issues were and I could have a constructive conversation with somebody and demonstrate that I, that, that I had knowledge and insight in that particular field. And once those conversations started opening up, it offered the opportunity for me to start developing the experience that I needed, working on little pet projects here and there to be able to demonstrate that I had a bit of insight into the practicalities that were involved. And then I started working on my contact networks and I went to as many conferences as I could. I went to as many training sessions as I could. At the time I was doing a and my MBA and my research thesis was into, you know, what are the financial challenges with financing renewable energy. And that gave me access to a huge number of people in the country where I managed to have one-on-one -on -one conversations and interviews. And not only did that give me insight into what the issues and the challenges were and the perceptions that people thought, but it also helped me to build that the contact networks and establish the relationships that I needed. And on the basis of that, opportunities started coming my way where I was being approached, people saying, here is an interesting opportunity. We think you might be very good for the role. Why don't you apply for it? And they would put me in touch with other people. And what that enabled me to do is I went from being a business analyst at Shell and moved over to being director of renewable energy for the South African government, which was quite a massive step change. And, and it's the kind of change that it doesn't happen overnight. You have to work on it. But it's something that, um, that can be done if you turn it into a personal project. Did you find it hard to change over to different industries? Did you find that your skills and experience were complemented to the other industries or did you have to do a lot of training on yourself? I've discovered over the years that one of my superpowers is that I'm a quick learner. I've always, I've, I've had a, a, a lifelong attitude of continuous learning. So it was the the same thing that drove me to want to study an MBA. It was the same thing that got me to study. I did a master's in philosophy and future studies. So I've always had this curiosity into and this fascination with lots of things. I think it's the reason I got into engineering in the first place. And because I've been fascinated in lots of things and interested in lots of things, I, I absorb new information like a sponge. And what I found with the transitions of going from one industry to the next is that always needed to learn new things and the learning curve was really steep, but I relished it. So I would spend my time and energy figuring out what I needed to know, making sure that I picked up that new knowledge, that I spoke to the right people. And the other tactic I've used is that I've constantly looked for a mentor to help me out. So when I started my career, the iron and steel industry, I, I started off with a bursary. And what they had was they had a specialized engineering, engineering training scheme. Mm -hmm. And part of that scheme was that you had a, a mentor allocated to you who you would then work with to make sure that you could get to your professional registration. And when I left the iron and steel industry and I no longer had access to that formal 
way of, of working with a mentor, I started seeking out mentors. And the interesting thing about it is that, you know, it's it's as simple as just finding somebody that you admire or that you like working with or you think may be good in being able to help you understand what you need to know and then asking them. And some people would be amenable and some people won't. Some people will say yes, some people will say no. And it's just a case of persevering and finding somebody with the right personality who can support you. And what that person does is they give you the extra insight that you need because you've always got blind spots. There are things that you don't know that you don't know. And you need somebody to be able to point that out to you. And I think it's the combination of just, you know, naturally being a, a, a quick learner and wanting to know about things and also having a little bit of extra support from somebody that, that helped me bridge the gaps that I needed in the new roles. Because the, the roles that I've taken on have also been different to the previous roles. And what that does is it enables you to build on previous knowledge and experience and then add to your skill set. Okay. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. What do you think is the most important thing that your mentors taught you or the piece of advice that you still use today? Yeah, it, it's interesting because each each person is different and the their guidance and their insights into what's important will vary from one person to the next. So it's difficult to say whether there's really been a consistent theme. I think the thing that I've relied on is I've relied on the mentors to give me insight into what do I need to work on. So it's it's essentially a conversation. It comes down to, a you know, these are the things I'm interested in. This is my perception of what's happening. And then that will start a conversation where they'll start asking questions. And by asking me questions, they'll figure out what I maybe don't know or where the sh- my shortcomings are in terms of what I need to know. And then they can give me guidance in terms of where I can find that information. And and that comes in two, two ways. It comes in, you know, you should read these documents or these articles or these books. And the second way that that information is, uh, or, or the help is given, is by putting you in touch with other people who can give you a little bit of extra insight into those things. So that extended contact network that you get from, from, from mentors, I think is invaluable. What was the most challenging thing that you found in your career? Each role, I think, brings its own unique set of challenges. And part of the challenge of figuring out what you need to do in the role is is just spending time in it and and trying to figure out uh, what's needed so what i've started doing is usually one of my standard interview questions when i'm in an interview being interviewed for a new role is i will always ask whoever the person is that i'll be reporting to the supervisor what they believe the biggest challenge is going to be in that particular role and that'll give me some good insight into what is essentially going to be my main area of focus when I'm moving to that particular role. So there's that aspect to it. There's the how do I find the relevant information to be able to do the work that I need to do. So the knowledge management aspect is always challenging because different organizations have got different philosophies in terms of how they make knowledge available and whether it is kept in a single repository or whether it is something that you just have to figure out for yourself and find out by talking to other people. And the third aspect I think that is most challenging in in new roles is you always need to, you need to work with um, new people in new teams and you need to build those relationships and it takes time to build those relationships and establish 
the trust and rapport with new people that you're working with. So part, I think, one of the biggest challenges of, of, of starting a new role and working, in, especially if it's in a, in a different organization or a different industry, is just building up those contact networks so that you can be more proficient at your, um, at your work. D- did I answer your question? Yeah, I was just wondering as well, what do you enjoy most about being an engineer? Ah, that's a lovely question. I think it's, I think it's the, there, there are two aspects to it. It's the fascination of how things work and being able to apply your knowledge. But it's also the problem-solving aspect because I, I think one of the biggest contributions that engineers make is engineers make sure that things work. But to make sure that things work, you need to solve problems because inevitably they're going to be problems. And all the engineering roles that I've ever worked in have always involved interesting challenges that have forced me to think outside the box, to question assumptions, and to really put my thinking cap on to try and figure out what's actually going on, what's happening in this environment, why is this an issue? And I guess over time, you you kind of start developing a, a methodology to how you personally approach solving problems. I think the the other thing that's really important in um, in solving problems is also to realize that uh, the more inputs you can get from other people, the better, because teams are better at solving problems than individuals are. So if you're working in a in a team that's very collaborative, where it's people are easy to approach, and they're not in that mindset of being completely overloaded, where they are so worried about meeting their own deadlines and requirements where they can actually have conversations with you and you can bounce ideas around. There's a lot of richness that comes out of other people's experience that can help with problem solving. And so there's there's that aspect to it of getting input from other people who are really bright and intelligent. I think that's that's one of the nice things about working in the engineering environment is that you meet a lot of really bright and intelligent people. And I just like you know working with people like that and talking to people and, and getting insight into into how they think and their approach to things. And there's always something new to learn. It's unbelievable. You know, every single day that you're working in an engineering environment, you're going to come across a new situation, a new thing that you can learn. And I find that very rewarding. Okay. So what do you think makes an outstanding hire? I think there are... First of all, there's the, the attitude that a person brings to, to a job. Adopting a mindset of continuous learning, I think, is really important. That's one of the most important things because I think you can throw anybody in the deep end if their attitude is, I don't care what the problem is or what the issues are, I'm going to learn what I need to know to be able to work and solve the problems and to come up to speed and do what needs to be done. That goes a long way. But the other thing is 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 attitude. You know, if you've got an, a can-do attitude and a positive attitude of regardless of what the circumstances are or if there's difficulty in team dynamics or you, you're struggling with a particular manager who's difficult to get along with or whatever the challenges are, if, the, if somebody comes in with the right attitude and is, has got a positive mindset, I think that's, that's, that's really important. And that's a valuable contribution to to a team. And I think the other aspect that I think is important in a in a in a new hire is 
you know, as engineers, we focus on the technical stuff a lot, but the, the mm-hmm. soft skills, the, the interpersonal skills, the ability to be able to communicate and have difficult conversations, and the ability to understand when somebody might be struggling for whatever reason, and being able to meet them where they are as a human as another person with feelings and just, you know, having a feeling, uh, 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 having some insight into the soft skills and working on those soft skills, I think is an incredibly important part of a, of a person's repertoire. Okay. I mean, you know, every, every situation I've been in, I've, I've noticed how important the ability to be able to communicate is and communication. Everyone takes it for granted because we communicate every day, but there are different ways of communicating and 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 it's it's something that if if you pay attention to it and you continuously work on it there there are all sorts of new skills that you can pick up along the way so i could give you give you some examples one of the techniques that i that i that i picked up um, a little while ago was something called nonviolent communication it's a guy by the name of rosenberg who talks about when you're working with somebody and and you're in a difficult environment where there's conflict it's very easy for people to become very defensive. And when people are very defensive, then communication really breaks down because you're not in a, a situation that is conducive to good quality communication. And so Rosenberg's technique is that what he says is he's got four steps in his technique. He says what you need to do is you need to, first of all, slow down, stop and say, talk to what the observe, the observation is. What are you observing? What behavior are you observing? And then what you do is you talk about how that makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And then what you do is you talk about what your unmet need is in that particular situation. And then you make a request for how that person can meet that particular need. Okay. It sounds simple, but putting it into practice is really difficult and it takes a lot of time and practice. And it's like any skill. You can read about it in a textbook, but you need to practice it to turn it into something that is useful. And so taking time to actually work on and practice these skills and finding people that you feel comfortable doing these exercises with is really important. You don't want to use a new communication technique in a situation where you've just got to know somebody new. The stakes are high. There's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. There's third parties involved. Maybe there's a client sitting around the table. That's not the time to, to try a new communication technique. So you want to find safe space to be able to practice your techniques. And then once you start embedding those, you can then bring them into your into your, your normal work environment where there are lots of other people involved. Okay. Can you explain what you meant by using the techniques in a safe environment? Yeah. One of the best ways to, to test or to, to practice new skills is to do role plays with your colleagues. So if you've got a colleague that you've got a very good reputation, uh, a very good relationship with, you get along well and you can say to them, okay, you just want to, let's say you want to practice nonviolent communication as a, as a technique, then you can ask them to do a role play exercise with you where it's just two of you in a room and you can go through it. And then what you can do is you can give, you can ask that person to give you some feedback and, you will learn from the feedback. Okay, interesting. No, that's that's really interesting. I've just wondered, what do you consider your zone genius? My zone of genius. One of the most insightful exercises that I ever did. It's part of my calibrating your personal compass, which is something that I do on a regular basis. I can talk a little bit more about that, but later. But part of my exercise of reflecting on 
where I am in life, what's happening. Because as I've got older, as I've got through my career, as my career has progressed, I've realized that my interests have changed and my values have changed and the things that are important to me, my priorities have changed. And part of that change is also my skills and my knowledge and how I've developed as a professional. As I start realizing that there's some things that I'm good at and other things that I'm not good at, and the more time I spend doing the things that I'm good at, the better I get at them. And so, long story short, part of my calibration, my personal compass calibration exercise that I do is this reflection where I sit down and I say, okay, I take stock of what am I doing well at the moment? What am I interested in at the moment? What are my values at the moment? Are they the same as what they have been in the past? And in trying to figure out what I'm good at, because I don't think most people really understand what they're good at, there are a couple of exercises that you can do to figure that out. And one of them is to do a test where you do an assessment of your strengths and your skills and your talents. And one of the one of these tests is a thing called the Clifton Strength Finder. And when I did my Clifton Strength Finder, I found that in my top five strengths, learning was one of my top strengths. I'm also a futurist. I'm very good at focusing on things. And so I figured out that my superpower, my zone of genius, is my ability to be able to learn new things. And I think it's the single most important um, talent that I've had or strength that I've had that's enabled me to be able to switch from one industry to another industry or to switch from one role to another role. So I've worked in operations, I've worked in um, design, engineering, construction and procurement and construction, EPC. I've worked in financial investments and assessing new projects, the feasibility of new projects financing. I've worked in corporate finance. I've worked in government. I was director of renewable energy for the South African government. And consistently throughout all these changes that I've that I've made, I think my my superpower that's helped me through all of them has been my um my ability, my my fascination in in things and my learning ability. And the more you learn, the better you get at it. Mm-hmm. What was your best role that you've had then out of all the all the roles that you've done? Because you've had quite a varied experience. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I think the, the, the roles that we enjoy the most are the ones where we use our strengths and our talents the most. So the more you can lean into your, into your strengths and your talents, the more you're going to feel as though you're in a state of flow. So I... I've got a couple of things. Um, I, I, I studied a master's in, in future studies because I was really interested in how do we make decisions about the future? How do we make investments about what's going to be – you need some insight into what's going to be happening in the future, what's coming, down the, the, what, what's coming down the path. And if there's a wave to be caught, how do you catch that wave? How do you prepare yourself to be ready to be able to catch that wave? So one of the roles that I did was I was working for new business development for Cecil. And I was looking at future trends. And part of those future trends was to say, okay, where's the market going? Where are the growth opportunities? Where are the blind spots? So it combined the learning about new trends and it combined that futuristic element that I was interested in. And it, it, it incorporated the, how do we make a decision about what would be a good investment based on what we think is going to be happening in future? So that was really the sweet spot for me. I really enjoyed that um, that particular role because the two things that became glaringly obvious to me when I was doing that work is one was with the climate change issues and more and more pressure coming on climate change. 
that was going to drive us to a point where we would be looking at using less carbon to generate less greenhouse gas emissions, which meant that you were starting to look at more hydrogen-rich type fuels. So at the time, I was thinking, you know, switching from traditional fuels into methane was potentially better because it had it was less carbon intensive. And ultimately, in the long run, switching into hydrogen would be the most sensible thing to do because that way you're producing water. Of course, the question is, how are you producing the hydrogen? But it was that trend towards cleaner fuels that I could see that was really important. And that kind of drove me to start looking at how do I realign my career to start looking at getting into renewables. The other thing that happened with the work that I was doing at Cecil was I was starting to think about closing loops. So the circular economy concept, which is where instead of making something like a plastic and using it once and throwing it away and it becoming a waste problem, of how you can close that loop and make sure that you reuse your your materials. And so I was thinking in the hydrocarbon space, it would be better to make something that was permanent, that was always going to be used and that wasn't going to be thrown away. And if you were going to reuse it, then how how do you, you know, how do you chemically recycle it? You know, maybe use a pyrolysis technique to convert that back into the building blocks and then re-manufacture your plastic from the from the original building blocks. And so those two drivers became focus areas for me in my career where I thought, okay, renewable energy, low, low carbon um, emissions, hydrogen type um, fuels, and circular economy. Those are the two areas that I want to focus in. And that was really the start of that exercise where I started looking at, you know, how do I sh- switch my career? And where I started focusing on those three things, knowledge, experience, and contact networks to be able to move from oil and gas into renewables. I also wondered, how does your current role compare to your aspirations as a young boy? Oh, that's interesting. I think uh, at the moment I'm, I'm freelancing and I'm experimenting with the idea of a portfolio career where I have got several different things that I focus on as a way to diversify my income sources. So I do a little bit of online support work where I help people with um, calibrating their personal compass, especially for individuals who are not sure about where they want to go next or what they want to do next in their career or their life. So that's a a personal compass calibration exercise, which I help uh, people to go through. And then the other thing that I help people with is the transitions. If you want to do a transition from one industry to another industry, or if you want to move from one role to another role, and you're looking at defining some type of long-term project where it may take you one to two or maybe three years to make the change, is helping you to focus on those three things, your knowledge, experience, and contact network development to be able to make that transition. And and those two things are very different to the engineering work that I do because it's more personal development work related than it is engineering work. And so, you know, reflecting back on when when I started my career and I thought I wanted to get into engineering, I was pretty convinced that I would only be doing engineering, you know, for the rest of my career. My interests have shifted over time. And I'm also very interested in personal development, not only personally, but in helping other people with their personal development. And so I now have this ability to do some of the technical work as well as some of the personal development work. And I find that really rewarding. So what does your average week look like then? 
at the moment, as a freelancer, it is very varied. So when I was working full-time roles, I had more of a structured day where I was working on specific projects. And then depending on where we were in the project execution cycle or in the due diligence cycle, that would determine what I was doing. At the moment, with the the hybrid working that I'm doing, where it's a mixture of different things, I have days that are dedicated to working on my podcast, doing my creativity work where I work on creating videos and editing videos. Some of my time is spent working with individual clients where I have got an accountability group where we meet every two weeks and we discuss progress on the personal campus calibration work or on the transition space the, in transitioning from one role to another, the long-term work. And then there's a portion of my week which is dedicated to working with clients where I'm doing work which has been paid for. Like at the moment, I'm working with organization who does rooftop solar panels and they're looking at um, their investment business cases and their commercial contracts. So I'm just doing commercial contract reviews for them. So it's it's very varied at the moment, and, and I quite like the variability in in the week. Uh, there are advantages and disadvantages. You know, full time employed, you don't have to worry about generating income, and you can just get on with the job. But you don't have the flexibility of doing the other work. If you're working more in a freelance space, which is what I'm doing at the moment, then you have to spend a bit of time working on finding clients and that doesn't pay the bills. So you need to take the rough with the smooth. There's there's a balance to be had. Have you ever encountered any career disasters and what lessons did you take from them? Yeah, I've been working for just over 25 years and inevitably there have been some, some disasters. So I think the thing that I've struggled with the most in my career have been redundancies and layoffs or retrenchments. So I've had I've had several of those. At the end of the financial crisis, 2008-2009, I was working in the renewable energy industry and with the financial crisis, all the work dried up and there wasn't much opportunity, you know, uh, all the consulting work just dried up and companies were under a lot of stress and they started cutting back quite significantly. And I was made redundant during that particular period. Getting back into work was really difficult because there were lots of people in the same situation who were also looking for work and it was stressful. It was a little bit traumatic. The thing that they taught me is a couple of things. Number one, the importance of resilience. And resilience is a really interesting characteristic because the more tough times you go through and get through, the more you realize that you can get through those types of things and it builds your resilience over time. Resilience, I also find, is you need to have the right mindset to get through those types of situations. And mindset is partly your attitude and your attitude needs to be, I'm going to get over this I'm going to find a way around the problems. I am going to find solutions. So it it's almost as though you move from problem solving in a technical environment to problem solving on a personal front. The other thing that those experiences have taught me, and I've been through four redundancies in total. One was a voluntary redundancy, which is how I got out of the iron and steel industry. And three of those have been more recently in the energy industry, 
with commodity cycles and economic cycles and the COVID pandemic that we've just been through, it's been quite rough. The other thing that it's taught me is the importance of contact networks and to stay in touch with as many people as possible and also to nurture those relationships. You know, it's one thing having people that are in your contact network, but if you never speak to them and you never stay in touch with them, and then one day you're suddenly in a situation where you need to go and have a chat to them about, are there any opportunities or do you know anybody that you can put me in touch with who's looking for somebody? It's much easier having that conversation if you've nurtured that relationship and stayed in touch with them than it is if you haven't. So I think those are the things that I really learned from from those tough experiences. Who do you depend on in a working environment? Yeah, teamwork. <laughs> That's the one thing that I've learned is that teams are really important and being able to rely on other people in teams is, is, is critically important. I found that, especially as you get along in your career, if you're not doing calculations on a regular basis, you kind of lose touch with it. You become inefficient at it. It takes a bit of time to get back up to speed to go back and do those types of things. And typically, it's the younger engineers who are better at that, who are fresher with their skills and their speed and their ability to do that. So I quite often, when it comes to doing, when it comes to doing detailed spot checks on calculations, will rely on the young engineers to do that work for me. And there's, there's a bit of a history, there's a background to this, to the story. So when I, was, when I started off in the iron and steel industry, I, one of the first week, almost literally in the first week that I, that I walked into that job, one of the senior engineers, well, he'd been working for about 10 years, came to me and said, can you still remember how to do an integration calculation? I said, yeah, of course. I just got out of university. We were doing it all the time. He said to me, well, we've got the, we've just done this refractory relining on a hearth and we need to, f- we need to calculate what the new volume is so that we know what our production is going to be. And I haven't done an integration calculation for years. I don't know how to do it. So, um, can you, can you just quickly do it? So I said to him, okay, give me the, give me the dimensions, give me the drawings, did the calculation, just quick and easy and straightforward, and gave him the results. And the thing that is shocking about that is I've never done another one of those calculations in the last 25 years. Okay. So it just reminded me, you know, how important it is for, um, you know, using people who are familiar with something and do it on a regular basis. And so, yeah, to go back to your question – when it comes to doing, you know, detailed spot checks, if it's something that I haven't done recently or that I don't do a lot of, I'll rely on young engineers to do that for me. But the other thing I think to realize in any team dynamic is that, you know, you get some people who are team players, you get some people who are technically orientated, you get some people who are really good at time management, you get some people who are very good at solving difficult problems, you get some people who are good at being able to have difficult conversations with influential people. So everybody brings a different skill skill and talent to a team and figuring out who's good at what and going to that person to help to get them to work on that particular aspect of any problem that you find yourself or any situation that you find yourself in is really important. And and that comes down to, you know, just getting to know people and knowing what they're good at. Uh, and that takes time. It takes it takes time to to get those insights. Okay. What else would you rely on maybe a junior person to carry out type of work for you? I know that calculations would be quite an easy one because they would be doing it all the time since they have been doing it since they left university. 
I think it it also comes. I think one of the, one of the things that happens as you start developing in your career is that you become more strategically focused. Or at least I have. So I I tend to take more of a big picture view, and I start looking at you know, are things are things working as a system? So are all the bits and pieces sticking together properly? Are there any issues that are falling between the cracks between different disciplines and different groups? And so. My focus is is more on making sure that individuals are playing their role and checking that everything hangs together, and that where there is where there are interface issues, um, that's where I tend to focus my attention. So I, I've I've become more sort of like strategic in the way that I deal with things, and and what's more important to me is leading teams and making sure that the teams are meeting their criteria or meeting the 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 schedule that needs to be kept to and helping individuals who may be you know inevitably there will be problems that arise and it's about empowering people by helping them to solve those problems if you can help a team by taking the load off the day-to-day issues that shouldn't really be what they're focusing on it enables them to focus on their core role within that team okay yeah I was also wondering, if you could turn back time, what would you change or what piece of advice would you give yourself? I think without a doubt, the most important thing that I would advice that I would have given myself is to spend more time working on developing my contact network and nurturing my contact network. Ultimately, the only way we achieve anything is through the quality of the relationships and the people we know. So relationships are, are are absolutely vital and nurturing those relationships are really important and building a contact network I think is really important. So I would I would definitely if I was a mentor to myself, to my younger self, I would say focus on 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 building a contact network and nurturing it. Okay. That's good advice. Can you recommend anybody that I should talk to next? Oh, yes. I can think of some people. Um, probably better for me to do it outside of the recording. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Understanding the focus areas, I could, I could, I could definitely think of a few people that you would be interested in talking to. I, I'm assuming you'd be interested in talking to people that are, that are a little bit more senior. Yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've got quite a few people I could potentially put you in touch with. The question is just figuring out whether they would be interested in talking on a podcast, and that would be part of the selection criteria. So I, I think it makes sense for me to have a discussion with them first, and then if they're willing to come back to you and let you know. Yeah, that's cool. I think that was all the questions I had, actually. So very many thanks for your time. It's been really interesting. It's been lovely chatting to you, Michelle. It's, no, it's, it's great. been excellent. It's been really exciting. Also, I thought as well, the advice you gave on the, for the graduates, because some graduates, I sometimes I think that you give them work and they might think it's maybe boring and it's not cutting edge, you know, enough for them. But it's always important that they see that the type of work that you're giving you're giving to them is very important so i think that's a good message as well yes absolutely i think the other thing that you could that's important for younger members of teams to realize is that most teams are, are overloaded with work there's usually 
a shortage of resources. There's always time pressure. And so the contribution that that new team members and younger members make is invaluable. So it's definitely something to not not underestimate the contribution that um, that uh, younger members and a team make. Yeah, that's true. Because even though if you think that that it's maybe not an exciting task, it's still quite an important task that they're doing. Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things that frustrated me about um, some of the work that I was doing is it it can be a little bit repetitive. You know, when you're doing yeah, that's right pipe flow calculations and you're just doing you know and you're putting data sheets together and it's just you know one data sheet after another it's the same thing the same calculations very repetitive but it's incredibly important work because you're qualified to do the work you know how to do it it's easy because you've done it so many times before but nobody else can do it yeah that's true and it's quite important that you get the data sheet right because if you don't get the data sheet right then the equipment won't be right then the system won't be right yeah exactly yeah so never underestimate the value of the work and the contribution, even if it feels as though it's very repetitive and boring. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, the, it's the diligence of doing it accurately. That's what professionals do. That's what you get paid to do. I agree. I think that's all the questions I had. No, I actually had one more that we didn't touch on. It, but did you go to university straight after school? I did. It's a, it's a very interesting story. So... I I did go down the university route, and I, I also was privileged enough to qualify for a bursary. I wasn't a straight-A student, and so part of my problem was um, trying to figure out how to, how to find a bursary. And so what I did was I was looking for something that was unusual, that most people wouldn't – something that, was, that would potentially not be very popular – so the iron and steel industry had a bursary scheme, which was an engineering in training scheme, where one of the options that I had was a bursary that was unusual in the sense that it was a five-year period where there was one year of academic study, one year of working, and then the last three years of academic study. So I applied for the five-year bursary thinking it wouldn't oh. be particularly popular because I wasn't a straight-A student and I thought that um, it would be difficult for me to compete with other people who would probably be more interested in the shorter bursary that had a shorter commitment period. Part of that was that I was I was really into athletics at the time and I spent a lot of time training, possibly too much time on the athletics. And the other thing that happened was in my final year, in my final exams, I had chickenpox. The most mm-hmm. unbelievable thing is, you know, what are the chances of getting chickenpox in your final year at school during your final exams? So the result was that my my final marks, and specifically my maths mark, was even worse than I was expecting it to be. And um, I'd already been awarded the bursary, but the bursary requirements were that I had to meet a minimum threshold, and I didn't quite make it on the math side of things. And it was a conversation around the fact that I had had chickenpox that had probably impaired my performance on the day that helped for them to say, okay, we'll make an exception. And it was, I think, you know, the fact that I had developed so much perseverance and uh, an 
an attitude of continuously working on things that came from my aesthetics that I then apply later on in the in in my in my studies because I didn't pass all my subjects first time I had to redo a couple of subjects while I was at university some of those subjects I could do in the evenings some of them I had to do during the day and that meant that I spent an extra year at university that I wasn't expecting to have to do and the thing that kept me going was that absolute determination that I knew what I wanted. I, 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 I knew that if I just kept working at it and applied myself, that along, somewhere along the, the way, I would, I would get through it. And I think it was the, the discipline of the aesthetics where you know, I was training every single day. I had that mindset of being completely focused and dedicated to something that I then transferred into my studies that helped me get through, uh, through the, the engineering degree. And even though there was a period of time where I lost the bursary for a year and I had to do a bit of um, work on the sideline to earn a bit of income to be able to pay for that particular year, I managed to win the bursary back by passing all my marks, getting good results. My, my work was inconsistent because I'd get distinctions for some subjects and I would, wouldn't do well in other subjects. And so it was just, you know, continuous work and perseverance that ultimately um, got me through through that, that that whole experience, and so yeah, I was I, I was fortunate. Um, I managed to go down the university route. Um, I was fortunate enough to have the the bursary to pay for it. And had it not been for the bursary, I probably wouldn't have ha- wouldn't have done an engineering degree because we couldn't afford it. My family couldn't afford to put me through university. So without it, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have actually have got my degree. Okay. I was going to ask you whether you thought it would hinder you the way that you did your university and having a bursary and everything. Do you think it hindered you in any way for your career? I know when I started off in my career, I didn't go to university right away. It wasn't until many, a couple of years later. And I don't think it ever hindered my career to do it like that. Oh, no, I don't think it it makes any difference when you get your qualifications to be able to, to do what you want to do. Um, if anything, if you're doing other work, regardless of what it is, you know, it could be an apprenticeship. I know a lot of people in the in the engineering environment who started off as an apprentice and then decided that they wanted to formalize things in the engineering environment with a degree. Some people went down the t- technical degree route where they went to Technicon. Some went through the university route to to get a degree. Every bit of experience that you get is valuable because it is life experience, it's work experience, and one way or another, you can use that in everything that you do that comes after that. So whenever you decide to, to do a degree or to, um, to become qualified as a particular professional, it doesn't really matter when you do that. It, I don't think it holds back your career progression or your potential at all. If anything, it's going to give you a bit more of a rounded character and enable you to to be more resilient later on in your career. I agree. I think that's all the questions I have now, actually. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you very much. It was lovely talking to you, Michelle. So great having spending some time with you. It was really nice talking to you as well. Really interesting. I'm really excited now. Awesome. Good luck with the editing. I hope it goes well. I hope so too. Thank you very much. All right. 
That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.